What's up, everyone? This is episode number 46 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on my social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. And those of you that are already following me on social media, you might have noticed a couple of posts that I made this week. The first um, was a follow-up to my interview with David Harrison from last week's episode. If you haven't listened to that yet, make sure you check that out. I've talked about um, his exquisite RPA and the fact that they sell quite a bit higher than they probably should. Well, someone on Blowout mentioned um, that you know they were collecting exquisite around that time as well, um, which I wasn't. I was not. I was collecting, but not buying exquisite. And they mentioned that someone was actually hoarding them on eBay in the early days, and supposedly this person still picks them up, even though their collection's private, and they own over half of the print run. So they they don't buy into the theory that there's actually less than 225. Um, like I said, I was collecting David a little in 2004. I definitely wasn't following up on who was you know winning all the exquisite stuff. I think I was 16 years old then, so it was a little out of my range to begin with. So you know that revelation's pretty interesting to me because that's what I set out to find is is that information. You know, asking questions and getting answers. So. Um, that was a piece of, of good news, I guess, in the fact that I found out what's happening. Um, kind of strange that someone's hoarding them, though. The second thing I posted about involves a, a bit of a crazy pull that I had last week out of a Panini status blaster. And before I tell you what that was, I want to give a little more context for why this was pretty exciting for me. And I don't remember if I mentioned it on here before, but at one point, I was not a fan of status at all. To me, it was in the same category as hoops. Maybe it was because it was a retail exclusive this past year. Um, I remember seeing full trays of this stuff at Walmart and leaving it behind. Now, however, um, I'm all about the product. And one of my listeners, um, Steve, he was part of the the first listener forum, actually. And um, he asked me why I had a change of heart. Well, he didn't know it, but he played a big part in changing my perceptions about the product. So originally, you know, I thought it was just a low end, kind of an ugly filler product. Um, 2017 definitely looked a lot worse than 2018. 2018 looks pretty nice. Um, But I really hadn't put the time in to understand the logistics of the set. And as it turns out, there was some serious thought put into the logistics of this thing from the product's inception. And I've grown to appreciate that. Um, and then back in late August, I did a credentials episode and talked quite a bit about the mirrored numbering in that set. If you missed it, I think that was episode 25. Make sure to check that one out. But um, at one point in the episode, I mentioned that, to the best of my knowledge, you know, credentials was the only set or only parallel that ever utilized that style of numbering. But it turns out that it wasn't. I've been collecting this whole time and completely overlooked a similar effort from Panini. So um, Steve, he's, you know, has become a, a good friend in the hobby for me. He's, you know, we message one another occasionally. He responded, though, with an awesome post on Instagram. He kindly pointed this out, showed me a couple of pictures of a status parallel that Panini you know, has featured in products for years. I think in the past it's been in Elite and Donruss. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure I pulled one of the Elite versions in 2012. really didn't know what I had. Um, And now they're in a standalone product that adopted the status name. So I learned something new. 
I stored that knowledge in the back of my mind and I went on collecting like I had been. So I wasn't really, you know, he showed me that it was cool. I wasn't converted to status yet, right? Well, about three or four weeks ago, I was browsing ComC for uh, Victor Oladipo cards, as I often do. And a die cut card from 2018-2019 status popped up for like $6. And I knew that these were rumored to be case hits. And, um, you know, I thought it was something different. It sat on there for about a week. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and pick that up. I think that's a cool card. And from this point, I really wanted to figure out the print run of this die cut parallel. Well, I was looking at box odds. And I realized then that the product was split between Walmart and Target. And the different parallels were distributed in different ways. Some were in hangers, some were in blasters, some were in fat packs. Um, you know, I thought back to the mirrored numbering that Steve had shown me. I thought back to the draft night autos that I talked about in the Luca episode. And so I guess a lot of the information about status was there for me, but it hadn't quite clicked yet. And this set is really cool. And the cards look great in person. Um, so you know, now it's clicked and I realized I was completely wrong about this product. So um, I set out to find some in stores and it's been out for quite a while now, but I, I was seeing a lot of posts on social media about people finding it and people were even finding it on clearance. Um, you know, some of the low end uh, wax stashers that I've talked about were even stashing it. Well, you know, we can't have that. I think this stuff needs to be opened and I wanted to rip some of it for myself. So I tried on a couple different occasions. I couldn't find this stuff. You know, I was telling people I was hunting for it. They thought I was crazy because it's not, you know, it's not a big draw. It's not anything that's like, you know, you're going to just come home and just make millions of dollars on, right? But it was just something that I really wanted to open. Um, after one unsuccessful midnight Walmart run, um, which, you know, that's when, where all my great ideas are, right? Midnight. I finally logged on Blowout and I just ordered three blasters on there. Um, you know, I still wasn't sure about the die cut odds. I wanted to pull one. I've seen two people say that they got three in one case. I think there's 20 boxes in a case. So that would make them about one in every six blasters. That gave me about a 50% shot if I ordered three boxes. Okay. So Thursday afternoon, UPS drops the boxes off. I open the first pack and I see a die cut edge already. Like, you know, what are the odds of that? That's crazy, right? I didn't care, you know, if it was Dwight Howard, I didn't care. If it was Evan Turner, I didn't care. I just wanted to pull one. Well, much to my surprise, it was LeBron James, and I was floored. Um, in fact, I didn't, you know, didn't even open any of the other packs for a while. I don't bust a lot of wax, so I really don't get a lot of nice hits. Yeah, this was really special for me. I'd studied the set. I'd looked all over for it. I couldn't find it. I finally got it, and I got this big pull. So I was pretty excited um, I even called Mrs. Wax Museum on the phone like she cares, right? She did her best to kind of share in my excitement. She's a real saint. Um, but that's why I'm telling you guys. That's one of the fun parts about the hobby, sharing your hits with other collectors, sharing that chase, sharing that experience. Um, I got a lot of messages about the card when I pulled it, a lot of LeBron collectors, and a couple of actually really high offers on it. Um, will I keep it in the long term? You know, it's hard to tell. I've got the Oladipo still. I've got the experience of pulling the big hit. I, you know, I've told people I'm keeping the LeBron for now, but we'll see. Um, you know, anyway, though, that was my big pull. I was really excited about that. Um, I wanted to share that. Since then, I've posted a little more about status on social media because I'm like consumed with this set right now. It really interests me. 
And I've had a couple of people asking, should I be buying status? And my answer to these types of questions is usually the same. Do you like the set? Is there anything in there that appeals to you? Because I really can't sit here and tell you what you should or shouldn't buy. And breaking wax on a small scale to make money isn't really a viable option. And I might make suggestions at times, but all of us collect differently. So I can't give a yes or no answer to that question. And that helps us segue into the main part of today's episode. I've been getting a lot of questions on social media and through direct message. I've seen a lot of questions posted in collecting groups in general. I've seen investment groups where people are encouraged to load up on Dollar Tree packs of Hoops and Donruss. It's a wild west out there right now, and I see some of the same questions asked over and over. And I think it's worth trying to address some of them on here. Now, if you have asked these questions, or you know, even one of them, by no means am I trying to patronize you. Right? I'm a firm believer in asking questions, and I send out quite a few questions to people when I'm researching some of my episodes. Right? That's why sometimes I'll ask questions on air, because I want to see if somebody else can find the answers that I can't, or somebody else has the answers that I don't have. So for today's episode, I've compiled a list of six questions that I'm going to try and answer as best as I can. It doesn't mean that I have all of the answers to everything. Some of these answers will be a lot longer than others. Some of you might not agree with my answers. I can't stress enough that this is just part of my methodology and that you should seek out multiple perspectives whenever possible. But like I said, I see these questions a lot and I think they're worth addressing here. All right, so now that we're in this Luca Zion era, the first question is usually accompanied by a picture of the card section at Walmart or Target. And that is, what card should I buy or is there anything here worth buying? Okay, so using the example of the card section, we're going to assume that this question deals with unopened product and not singles. That would require a whole different answer. As far as unopened product goes, the answer really depends on your intentions. Are you trying to buy something that you can flip? Are you trying to buy for immediate value? Are you trying to buy the box that has the most cards in it? Do you hate the hassle of opening packs? Are you trying to find products that suit your taste design-wise? When you say, what card should I buy, you really need to ask yourself, what do I get enjoyment from? So the first thing I asked in that sequence was, are you trying to buy something that you can flip? I'll address that later because that's even more complicated. Um, but are you trying to buy for immediate value? That was the next thing I asked. Whether you've been in the card world for a while or you're brand new, um, you probably heard of the acronym ROI, and that stands for Return on Investment. And in its simplest form, this is what you're getting back compared to what you're putting in. So from a strictly financial standpoint, if this is what you're after, you know, opening packs might not be for you. And even if you could get, let's say, 50% back on blasters, that's really good. I've never seen a set average, but from what I've opened, I wouldn't be surprised if the norm isn't around 20%, if not lower. So if you're opening for monetary value and you have no experience cost factored in, it might be best to just leave everything behind. I do want to take a moment to talk about an alternative real quick uh, while I have a moment. I follow someone on Instagram that took um, the price of a case of contenders and um, instead of buying that case, they bought eight or nine really nice cards from contenders that should appreciate over time. And the experience was completely different. And this person didn't have the chance of the huge monster hits, but the value was there, and I think he's going to be better for it in the long run. 
but for some people that's not as fun. Everyone enjoys the hobby in different ways, which leads to the next component of this question, and technically we're still on question one, so I'm going to move quick here. Are you trying to buy the box that has the most cards in it, or do you hate the hassle of opening packs? If you don't like opening packs, well, this seems obvious, but buying wax might not be for you in the first place. If you don't like opening packs, don't buy packs, right? Just make sure you, but if, you know, just make sure you read the packaging. Um, so there are options out there that maybe don't have um, as many packs. Um, you know, I know my wife generally hates hangers because she enjoys the experience of opening a bunch of smaller packs, but there are other people that would rather get it over with quick and love opening the hanger and just that one clear, you know, 30 card pack or whatever it is. Um, the next thing I would ask is, are you trying to find products that suit your taste design wise? If everyone out there is loading up on Prism and you don't like shiny cards, don't buy an entire tray of Prism just because it's there and people have been fawning over them and driving all over to find them. You're letting popular opinion and the collecting masses tell you what to do. Collect what you like. Okay, so just to recap we're still on question one. The original question was, what cards should I buy? Or is there anything here worth buying? The summary of my answer is to figure out your intentions and do a little homework. You know, it's 2020. We all have smartphones. You can do this. All right. So now you've found that product in stores. You did part of your homework and you didn't post a picture of the card aisle. Instead, you're going to post a picture of your cart. We see that a lot, right? And, and ask question number two, which is, do I hold or do I rip? Now, first off, if you send me this question, probably nine times out of 10, I'm going to tell you to rip. I'm mainly a collector. Okay? It doesn't mean I don't sell stuff, but I'm mainly a collector. I like to see cards hit the market. But a lot of time, the logistics don't make a lot of sense to me either, as I'm going to explain in a moment. Now, if you've got a sealed box of 2003 Exquisite or something where the box price is essentially higher than all the big hits, then my answer will be different. But those people aren't reaching out to me. Those people don't need my help. Okay. With that being said, if you're really interested in holding wax, you have to have a plan. It's all about what products you choose and what time frame you're looking to capitalize in. And I'm not here to give you box recommendations. There are, you know, I know there are a lot of people that swear by some of the first off the line stuff. I've talked about that before. I read, you know, some some of the arguments from one of my friends, um, but there's plenty of discussion about that on the message boards. I think another content creator even made an entire video about making a ton of money off of those too. You know, if you want to check that out, fine. Just proceed with caution. Um, but if you're going to make a ton of money off of cheap retail stuff in the immediate future, or if you think you're going to, I should say, and that's what I see most questions about on social media. If you think you're going to do that you're probably going to run into some major obstacles. Let me run through the logistics of holding a cheaper sealed retail product. And this is all hypothetical. Uh, now, I know you can get them on clearance at times, or I know you can get them cheaper if you buy in bulk online, but I'm just going to focus on people that are driving to the store for them right now and buying at full price. Okay, so let's say your local Walmart or Target is seven or eight miles away. So we'll say, you know, that's a 15 mile round trip. Um, let's say you get 30 miles a gallon on your vehicle. So that's half a gallon of gas you're going to be using. Depending on where you live right now, that half gallon probably costs around $1.25. Remember, it's a half gallon. Okay. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but I want to show you how this all adds up. Okay. I talked about my adventures with status in the intro. Let's say you find eight status hangers at Target. 
And I think these are $10.99 a piece before tax. So that would be $87.92. If your state tax is around 8%, then that's going to be around $95 total. If you have a Target red card, you know, you can save $5 or save 5%. So for this scenario, let's say you do, that drops it to roughly $90. So we're going to add your gas cost in now, which makes that the total cost of that trip um, $91.25 plus your time. You know, that got you eight hangers. Now, you drive them home, you put them up on eBay. Um, I actually made offers on some hangers this weekend and um, uh, unsuccessful offers, mind you. And it seems like people are looking for about $15 per hanger. So um, if you were buying eight hangers on eBay, that would be $120. Okay, so if you're selling, you know, you might be thinking, well, I paid $91.25, I'm going to make $120. You have to remember, though, eBay and PayPal are going to take around 13%, which is around $15. And that's why you'll see people trying to razz these on Facebook groups or Instagram instead. But let's assume that you're going the traditional eBay route. Um, after fees, you've really received $105. Okay, Let's say you ship all eight to the same person. Well, that's going to cost you another $15. So you also either have to drive them to the post office or pay to supplies to print a label at home. Even, you know, I'm not going to calculate that. So even without all of that, the money you're getting back has already dropped to $90. And you have $91.25 in them from the start. So you just lost money. And that's even provided everything shows up safe to the new, new destination. Um, you could lose even more if the package gets damaged or the buyer isn't happy. So there's just a lot of risk for a small payoff or in some cases no payoff at all and that's not necessarily to, dis to um, discourage you from flipping hanger boxes but I want to make it very clear that you're not just flipping $11 for $15 on these okay as I showed in this scenario there are a lot of hidden cost and then I didn't even get into paying taxes as a seller either so just be mindful of that um, I use status as a quick example because I'm a little more familiar with the pricing of it, but those costs and all those numbers will differ depending on the product you choose and the current demand. So let's say, you know, if you can get uh, $60 now for a $38 Prism Mega Box, you know, you'll make a little, um, you, you know, and you might decide you want to do that. Just remember, you're not pocketing $22. There's taxes, there's operational costs, there's shipping costs, there's selling fees, and so on. Um... Now, I also know that there are longer-term holds out there for retail um, that could do well over time. And I, I think, you know, as an example, and this is why a lot of people are holding current Prism, um, some of the older blasters like 2014 and 2015, I know they've at least tripled, if not more. 2018 blasters have shot up. So, you know, when you're buying and holding this stuff, it's all a matter of picking the right product and, and hoping that the class pans out or, you know, one of the players breaks out. So... I guess the real question is how much is your time worth to you? Um, I'm not knocking the people that are working hard out there to make a few bucks, but I just think people need to crunch the numbers a little beforehand to see if it's the right strategy for them. Okay, so question number three. Um, did I do well? Okay, is this worth $20? So let's say you've decided to take your $20 blasters and rip them. Okay, great choice. From time to time, people send me pictures of their breaks, be it a blaster, a hanger, loose packs, whatever, and they ask, how did I do? Is this worth $20? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We all like showing off our box breaks. You know, I talked about one of my polls in the intro today. 
But when I get these types of pictures, my initial response, if they're, if they're asking me how they did and if it's worth the money, my response is going to be the same. Was your entire experience worth $20 to you? And then we can move on to the cards and we can move into things like ROI. And I might even ask people what their initial expectations were. You know, take a card uh, like the Zion Silver Prism. You could go out and buy one for a certain cost. I don't know where they're at now. Let's say they're around $350. You might break $600 worth of packs and boxes along the way. And if you're just crunching the numbers, you didn't do well at all. But some people want to be able to say they pulled one and that's worth a certain cost to them. Having pulled one is like their own badge of honor. So, you know, not every card, though, is as liquid as a Zion Silver, uh, which leads me to the next question that I see all the time. Question number four, what is my card worth? Well, the no fun, complicated answer to this question is that your card is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And there are some types of cards or, you know, or card or specific cards out there that might only have one or two suitors. Let's say, you know, a Mark Madsen printing plate that might sit untouched in a $3 box that shows for years. But if two Mark Madsen super collectors, if they exist, see it online, they might push the price of that thing to $30. Okay. Or um, let's take a super high end card, for example, the PMG green that sold last year for $350,000. It made Forbes website it made national news, but it was an auction format. So there were definitely two bidders. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gotten to that point. Um, obviously, we know that a high-end collector named Nat Turner needed it for his PMG green set. Does that sale make the rest of the print run worth $350,000 as well? Some people would argue yes. Others would say that there are only so many people out there with the right combination of resources, desire, etc. And if it runs at auction again and a bidder is willing to pay $350,000, is there another bidder out there that would even push it to that point? So super high-end stuff can be very difficult, you know, or stuff that only has comps from years ago. It can be difficult. Um, your Donruss-based rookies of Zion and Brandon Clark, however, are not. Your numbered parallels are a little trickier, but still not too bad. If one is already sold, use that as a starting point. As more come out, the value will likely drop unless the player has a big game and his entire market trends upward in general. For cards that don't have any comps, find a player with a similar market. This is where a set like Prism is handy. The cards are everywhere and there's an established market already. So you can use it to compare players to an extent. Um, also keep in mind that eBay is just a starting point. There are other marketplaces out there. Check Facebook and Instagram. You know, if you find one that's sold on there but there's no price, message the seller to see if they'll tell. You know, If it's a card that's been around a while, I look at some of the current prices that people are asking on ComC as well. Okay, so all of those things will at least help you to create a value range. And sometimes creating a range is more important than landing on an exact number itself. Because if you plan to move the card in the future, having a range gives both you and potential buyers the flexibility to make something happen. Okay, but don't post a lot and ask for help if you're just too lazy to look up all the individual cards. Put in as much work as you can on your end and then ask for help if you get stuck. One more thing before I go on to question five. If you don't agree with the way someone values or prices their cards, especially if they're trying to sell them, um, just move on and let it go. I posted a, a $45 Luca rookie on Facebook a couple days ago and someone immediately commented that the price was way too high. 
and they did it kind of in a dramatic way. Um, someone else chimed in with a picture of a $29 comp and made some snide, sarcastic remark about um, how 150% above comp isn't that bad. You know, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that these comments played at least a partial role in the complete lack of interest towards this card, which otherwise, you know, a Luca rookie priced around market would would move. Um, because as it turns out, it was priced well, and I had done my homework. Remember, I had it at 45. Um, a PSA 9, for some reason, had sold at 82, and I wasn't going to use that as a comp. There was a raw sale for 29, as they mentioned. There was an additional raw sale for 45, and the only copy for sale on eBay at the moment was something like 55 shipped. So 45 shipped was more than fair, but of course it wasn't going to sell after these comments. Um, and then on top of that, I had to take the time to explain the pricing to them. So if you don't agree or if you don't understand someone else's pricing, leave it alone and move on. All right, question number five. Question number five is one that I see a lot. Should I grade these cards? Okay. And I've had people recently messaged me to inform me and this is not you know directed at one specific person I get a lot of, of general messages um, but I, I've had people message me to to ensure that I know that a $10 card can become a $30 card in a slab and maybe they've listened to part of my grading episodes and they thought they that needed to be clarified you know yes I understand that um, earlier I talked about the hidden cost of selling sealed wax and the same thing applies to grading cards how much are you paying to ship it to that submission? What's the cost of the submission itself? What are your fees or costs to sell the card when you actually get it and decide to move it? You know, it's not like you just buy a $10 card, grade it, and net $20 now that it's a $30 card. That's not how it works. It's just basic economics. Um, however, you know, I do understand grading can be a very profitable venture. And for some cards, the multiplier is high enough that it matters. You know, if you're grading a bunch of low-end stuff like Hoops or Donruss, it typically won't pay off. And I mentioned earlier this season, um, one of the bigger card podcasts out there, they do more general stuff, not just basketball cards. So they were trying to chime in on this whole basketball thing. And this is a pretty big podcast. They recommended that people buy Zion Hoops rookies when they came out and, and that they should grade them. And I, I called it out then because it was a dumb thing to say then. And I think it's a dumb thing to say now. And it makes me wonder, when are people going to start holding people accountable for saying stuff like this? There's absolutely no history with Hoops rookies in the last handful of years that leads us to believe this is a good decision. Um, there are, however, some people that do really well buying raw cards, grading them, and selling them. And um, a couple of guys on Instagram even show off their results You'll notice, though, that they send in large batches of cards to take advantage of pricing discounts at all levels. They buy at the right time of the year. They buy the right players. You know, there's a strategy about it. It's not just, oh, hey, I opened a pack. Should I grade? I'm going to grade this hoops rookie. So my suggestion would be if you want to get into that game, you need to study what they're doing. And if you think it's working and you could pull off something similar, then you can adopt those buying patterns. A lot of it is speculative, though. So some of these people, they were buying Anthony Davis in the offseason. You know, it was obvious he was going somewhere. They were buying Kimba and hoping that he has a nice playoff run with the Celtics. I think that's a pretty sure bet. Um, stuff like that. But no one is going out there and getting rich off of buying hoops and Donruss base rookies and slabbing them. Okay. Now, will that bring the value of your card up over time? Sure. 
but you don't have to grade every hit that comes out of your latest Walmart run. Okay. Once again, to clarify, I am not anti-grading, but as I've discussed before, there needs to be some serious reform in that industry. And if PSA and BGS keep getting backed up with stacks and stacks of worthless base cards, there's no incentive for them to change their business model. Okay, so short answer, uh, should I grade these cards? Well, what's your strategy? What are your intentions? You know, do the cost justify the end result? You have to decide on your own. Question number six, what do I do with all of the leftover cards from my breaks? Now, this mainly stems from people buying gobs and gobs of prism lately. And in order the, to address the question, we have to figure out the definition for leftover cards. I'm guessing they mean all the base cards in the low-end inserts, you know, the non-silver stuff, the non-green you know, stuff, whatever, all of the non-hits. So option one is to simply put them in a box and stash them away. And that works great if you have the space, you don't want to get rid of them. You know, this was me for the longest time. It still is to some extent, but um, at some point it just gets to be too much. And I haven't moved a lot out yet, but I have started including some of them in my inventory for my local card show. Um, I generally pull out all the superstars and put the rest in a large box for people to thumb through at their leisure. I price them at like 10 cents per card or 25 cards for $2. It doesn't seem like much. It's a lot to lug around, but some shows I might make 10 to $15 off this stuff. Um, it's not something I would haul to a big show if I were setting up at the National or something, but for a small local show, which is all I do, it works. You know, a lot of people do like thumbing through these. Um, another way to sell them, probably a better way, is to put them in player lots and list them on eBay or social media. You're still not going to get a lot of money for them, but people are more likely to buy a group of cards than they are one single card. Um, there are also ways to deal with these leftover cards that don't make any money because some people value space more or they value their time. There are some people that will literally throw them in the trash. And I'm, I'm definitely not a fan of this, but I'm not here to shun those people either. Okay, that's their choice. It's their property, you know, whatever. Um, another option is to try and give them to local schools or hospitals. Surprisingly, a lot of those places don't want them. So you just have to, you know, you might want to ask before you just try and give them away. If you're going to give them to teachers, though, make sure that they get a mix of star player base that kids are familiar with. Obviously, LeBron and Curry are big there. Um, you know, think about it. What kid wants a stack of Tree Rollins cards? Um, the final option I want to present is one that I've read some about, but personally, I've never tried. And there's a um, trading card charity called Commons for Kids that, according to their website, focuses on getting unwanted trading cards into the hands of kids. And they've donated over 11 million cards since 2011. Basically, they ask people to send a flat rate box full of cards to them, and then they'll distribute them to kids that are interested in them. And it's not an official 501c charity, so you're not going to get a tax write-off. But if you want to do something good with your cards, you know, if you think that will help promote the hobby with um, younger kids for the future, it looks like a good option. Okay, so if you do want to learn more about that, their website is commonsforkids.org, and that's the number four. So commons, the number four, kids.org. All right, so there you have it. Like I said earlier, those are six questions that I see on social media all the time. We all have different collecting perspectives and methodologies. I tried to present a number of different approaches to those questions here. Maybe you agree with what was said. Maybe you don't. 
Maybe you have something to add. Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. Normally, when I sign off here, I say all that good stuff. Tell Taco Bell they can pay me in burritos and so on and so on. Please still tell them that. But um, earlier this week, I mentioned on social media that Steve Sloan and PSA seem to have closed off their lines of communication again with me regarding altered patches. I want to keep the pressure on these guys because I'm tired of all the lip service. So, you know, I joked that I needed to write Steve a letter to the tune of Eminem Stan, and uh, some of you said you wanted to hear that. Well, be careful what you wish for. Have a great week. Dear Steve, I wrote you, but you ain't emailing or calling. I left my RPA tracker in my message at the bottom. I sent two emails since autumn. You must not have got them. Collector's Universe servers must be having a problem. You know all those cards were altered in the slabs when we bought them? But anyway, what's been up, man? How's your friend Joe? You made it clear to me that you're the president. He's just the CEO. The quarter four call is coming up, but he won't let us ask questions, though. So you told me the message you direct left the door slightly ajar. I'm in Japan on business, said your email from afar. Well, konnichiwa. You're fake, like that altered kawaii that you featured in SMR. Anyway, I hope you get this, man. Hit me back. Just a chat. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.